Amen. Thank you, band. I had never heard that song before, and that gave, I felt, just perfect words uh, to where my heart was at this morning. So thank you for that song. That was really a blessing. Uh, well, good morning. Uh, go ahead and open to your Bibles uh, to Matthew 5, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter Five. Uh, good morning to you who are streaming online, and good morning to you. Uh, it is so great uh, to have you here. I feel I'm like trying to keep myself. I feel like a. Uh, I think Luke said last week like a puppy, and I was like, it does feel like you're like this golden retriever that's like running around, just wanting to like hug everyone. And uh, uh, it's over these last two months. I was just thinking uh, uh, as we were staying there. I was like, you know what it felt like was you know when you're in a coffee shop and all of a sudden you realize you're kind of like talking to yourself. And maybe almost talking to yourself, and then like you'll tell a joke, and then you'll kind of laugh out loud to yourself, and then you realize you're sitting there in the corner, and, like, <laughs> and you look up, and people are staring at you, right? That's, that's kind of what it felt like at all times while you're in here with like maybe four or five other people in the room. Stan, a lot of times, would be doing cartwheels behind the camera to try to throw me off uh, when you're talking to a camera. So it is so incredibly good to be here with you. And, uh, and so it's, it's just, I hope you guys are blessed in being here as well. Uh, but again, we're starting, we're in Matthew 5 because we're starting a new series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and so the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus's longest recorded sermon. Uh, and so we're going to be preaching sermons on a sermon, which is kind of meta if you think about it. Uh, but uh, we're going to be preaching through Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. And I have to say that we we never could have foreseen just where this cultural moment that we are in when we plan this series uh, and how well this uh, sermon speaks to exactly where we are as individuals, as a society. One of the, uh, you can see that the tagline is finding brokenness, or finding wholeness, sorry, finding brokenness, finding wholeness in a broken world. Finding wholeness in a broken world. And I would just add to that, what we mean by that is finding wholeness in Christ, finding wholeness through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the message of, and the salvation that God has provided in, the, in our lives now to find wholeness in the midst of brokenness. And man, this week, guys, as I was looking this week, we're going to be looking at the Beatitudes, how healing, how helpful, how beautiful are the truths that are here. My soul needs them. Wednesday at our connection group, our connection groups at Anthem are just ways that we gather throughout the city uh, and throughout the area as a church midweek just to do life with one another and work out the gospel with one another. And, uh, and we were meeting Wednesday night and we went through uh, these, these Beatitudes and we just got into different groups and we just went through slowly for like over an hour just talking about what's going on now, where we're at and, and emotionally processing, but doing it through the grid of Jesus's words here. And man, I have, uh, just all of us afterwards are saying how refreshing this is how it drove us to Jesus, how it drove us to prayer, how it drove us to hope, how it drove us to humility. And so this morning, I'm, I'm incredibly excited for us to be jumping into the Beatitudes. So uh, Jesus has a lot to say. There's a lot here, and, uh, and so we're just going to dive in. So let's pray and dive in. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this morning from all sorts of places. We're in different states of mind. Lord, as we'll see this morning, we, we need to hear from you. Lord, we need your word. We need to be reminded again of the work of Jesus 
Christ, of his death and his resurrection. We need to be filled with your spirit. We need your fruit. We need your life in us. This doesn't come from us. This doesn't come from our world. It only comes from you. And so, Lord, this morning we come to your word to receive from you. So, Lord, feed us, heal us, fill us. Fill us with joy. Fill us with hope. Fill us with mercy. Fill us with humility. Fill us with meekness. Make us peacemakers. Help us to mourn with those who mourn. These things we'll look at today, Lord, help us to see where, what you would have for us in our lives and the context you've placed us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus, uh, first we're just going to look at what is wholeness? You might have been wondering when I said wholeness, what, what does he mean by wholeness? Like, you know, when I think of wholeness, sometimes we're, you know, it's like, is, is he talking about whole bread, whole wheat bread, whole, whole diet, you know, uh, whole living? Uh, is he talking about kind of like leave it to beaver? What are we talking about by wholeness here? Well, uh, Jesus is going to start this sermon by listing some Beatitudes. And each beatitude, uh, what, uh, what, this, what happens here in Matthew 5 is they start with the word blessed. Blessed is. And there's been a ton of ink spilt uh, over. Whole commentaries are written just on the Sermon on the Mount, and specifically these verses. And a lot of the discussion and the debate is about what does the word blessed mean? What does the word blessed mean? And, and it comes from uh, beatitude. The word beatitude comes from the Greek uh, makarios, which is actually the word for blessed here. In these verses. So beatitude, by way of Greek to Latin, by way of Latin through Greek, uh, we get this word beatitudes. And it's trying to capture this word for blessing. And it can mean anything from flourishing to happiness to blissfulness to fortunate. It's a notoriously difficult word to translate. And instead, one way that you could go about actually trying to uh, just uh, define it and describe it is by doing a word study. Uh, but the problem is with doing a word study is that you just get into this whole, like, huge array of words. And it's like, what do we mean by this? And what I think is happening here that we're going to look at next is that there is a humongous reality that's been set up already in Matthew's gospel that Matthew's kind of trying to, like, take and cram into this one word. And it's almost like, you know, when you get those, like, breakfast Pillsbury things, you know? It's like you, you're like... You know how it is, you're like tearing it and you're waiting for it to pop open because you're just afraid it's going to like explode in your face. And you, and you slowly, it's like, poof, and you're like, how did they fit all that in there? That's what it's like as you begin to unpack this word. It's like, how is all this in there? And specifically what we'll see is that it's describing blessed is to be living in the reality of God's life. To be living life with God, to be experiencing him, to be blessed means to be like holy and set apart, to be experiencing God's embrace, God's spirit filling you, Christ's work encompassing you, the Father's will over you, just being embraced in who God is. And so let's look at that because the context of the Sermon on the Mount goes back to chapter 3. Or, uh, and in three sixteen and 17, it says this, this is Jesus' baptism. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. 
And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Why does this set the context for what's coming later on? This is Jesus' first kind of scene after he's an adult. And Jesus is coming on the scene. And what happens is he's baptized. And we tend to think of him and be like, Okay, cool, Jesus was baptized. Maybe, maybe I should be baptized. Shouldn't I be baptized? Thinking about all that. What's happening here is the curtain is being pulled back. The veil is being pulled back. And we're seeing about the nature of God. And we're seeing here that we have God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And from before time began, God has been infinitely delighting in himself. See, God is not kind of like, he didn't create the world because he had need or lack. And he was like, well, I need some friends, so let's kind of add some people to the party here. Oh, man, they went bad. What are we going to do now? No, the story is that God is this like fountain, eternal fountain of love and delight. And the Father's delighting in the Son, and the Son's delighting in the Father, and the Spirit is delighting in the two of them. And it's just like a poet overflowing with love and delight. And God created the world to express that love and delight. And he made humanity and placed them in the world with the capacity to join in that worship, to join in that love, to join in that delight, to enter in with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and say, you are good and glorious and beautiful and loving and to find our satisfaction there. What we see here in Jesus is we get this glimpse into the Godhead. And Jesus, when he gives us this sermon, he begins to teach because he wants you and I, our entire world, to know that reality. But of course you might be saying, well, that's good for Jesus, but I'm, like, how does that work for me? Can that really happen for me? I'm, a, I'm, not, I'm not Jesus. I'm not the son of God. How, how does that work? How does it work in our world, which we've said is broken? Well, that's why right after the baptism, Jesus goes into the wilderness. And, and so in chapter 4, then Jesus is sent out into the wilderness. And what we see in Jesus is Satan tempts him, and he's able to deflect that and not fall into that temptation. And what's happening here is Matthew's saying, is, see, this is the life that you're meant for. This is the Messiah who's brought about that reality that you can know God. And now he is walking right into the reality that you and I know oh so horribly well. But here's the thing. Instead of falling, instead of just Going along with the brokenness, Jesus is able because he's so saturated with the reality of who God is that he's able to stand and to be obedient and to overcome. And he says it like this. He describes it saying, when responding to Satan, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, what is Jesus saying there? He's saying he lives his life in the presence of God. He gets who he is, his identity. He gets his joy, his peace, his reality around him. He thinks about it only through the grid of who God is. His life is from the mouth of God. And here's why that is important. Because Matthew specifically sets up this sermon. In chapter 5, verse 2. By saying... That then Jesus stepped up and he opened his mouth. This sermon today, it's specifically using the same language that wasn't even a chapter before. Of Jesus saying, my life comes from the mouth of God. And now God himself is standing up and he's saying, let me make that known to you. 
I want you to know it. And so what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount and with these Beatitudes, he's saying, listen, I've come into the brokenness. I've come into your reality. I understand. And I've come here to bring that reality that was lost so long ago that you hunger for, that wholeness, because you were made from wholeness for wholeness. You are meant to know life in God. And if you do, that is what it looks like to be blessed. And here's the irony. Many of these things that we're going to look at, (laughs) we hesitate to think of them as blessed. And what Jesus is doing is he's stepping into the brokenness of this world. He says, I want you to know my wholeness, my fullness, my delight, my love, the life that you can have in me. And you can have it in the midst of a broken world. So let's go to the Beatitudes. So first, that's, that's what wholeness is. It's looking at this blessedness. It's life with God. But then finding wholeness in the midst of brokenness. Now, what's interesting is Jesus just jumps into this sermon in, in, uh, in uh, verse 3, which is um, it's kind of funny. Jesus, Jesus doesn't need an intro. He's like, I'm God. I don't need an intro. No cool stories here. Just boom, just goes into it. And so he just, you know, I'm God. Buckle up. So he goes into it, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, when we read that, uh, it's interesting because we can miss what's really being said here. And each of these, I have to define them for us. And there's a lot of debate about who the audience of this sermon was. Uh, But one thing that's for sure that everyone agrees on is that the people, uh, who would have been in the audience would have been the religious teachers. Uh, and the people all know the religious teachers uh, teaching well because it comes up later in the Sermon on the Mountain. He's addressing them. And, and the idea is that the religious teachers kind of embodied this pridefulness. This, I, I, I can do this, God. In fact, actually, God, you're lucky that I'm here down on earth because or else all these people wouldn't know how to worship you like I do, right? They think they're very rich in spirit. They think that they have it all together. I can imagine when Jesus says these words like, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And he just kind of does one of these to like the religious teachers in the back. And they're like, whatever, Jesus, right? And so he's, but here's the thing. We so often fall into the same thing. We so often think that the way what God desires is people who have it just put together. We think that so often that what God desires is for us to be uh, kind of this heir of having things together. But in fact, what God desires is he desires people who understand, I cannot save myself. I don't have like moral riches. I don't have enough credit to be able to kind of deposit in a bank account so that one day I can be saved. He says, no, there is no human being who can pay that debt. And so what poor in spirit means, it's not just material poverty it's a spiritual poverty of knowing i'm a debtor i owe my soul i owe my eternal life this is why he says and theirs will be the kingdom of heaven i can't save myself someone who knows they don't have the moral riches to purchase salvation this is why we can sing in the, the hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. See, wholeness is found when we recognize we are broken. But he is the one who is whole. He is the one who brings healing. Next, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This morning is 
the morning of sin and its effects in ourselves and the world around us. In other words, Jesus is saying we should mourn. We, we, we should weep. We should, we should mourn for what we see around us. And, and I found, I was sharing this with our connection group on Wednesday. I have found this verse so incredibly helpful this week. Because it's almost like God, like Jesus here is giving us permission. Like, yes, when you see something worth mourning, when you see uh, that there is sin in you and you see sin around you, you should mourn that. See, this verse allows me to be just human. So often what I think is it's like, okay, I see something I mourn in, and it's like either because I just don't want to deal with it emotionally or whatnot, but I just, I so quickly, I'm the kind of person who runs to fix things. And so often in my fixing, what I'm trying to do is almost paper over the issue so that I don't really, I don't have to let my heart go there. But what God, what Jesus is saying here is you should mourn because God mourns, sin grieves him. And Jesus is saying, if you won't align, if you won't allow yourself to mourn, if you won't look at sin and mourn, either one, check your heart because there's something off about when your calibration of what should make you mourn. Sin should make you mourn. But also he's saying mourn because when you mourn, you are going to align your heart with your heavenly father's heart. Sin grieves him. Mourn, Jesus says, and you'll experience my comfort. If you want to experience God's comfort, mourn. You can't be comforted if you're not mourning. You can only comfort those who are mourning. And so mourn. That is why Jesus came. Isaiah, the prophecy in Isaiah 61, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Here's where this right now, in our moment, we should lament with those who are lamenting. We should be a people who are quick to listen so that we can also lament correctly and lament what is going on. I know there's lots to lament. It's a very complex issue, but we should be a people who lament, who cry, who cry out to the Lord. We shouldn't seek to just numb ourselves. We shouldn't seek just to escape it, but we should lament. Anthem, don't be numb to your sin. Don't be numb to the sin around you. Identify it, mourn it. Don't be numb and, and fail to mourn the consequences of sin, the brokenness, whatever is there, we should mourn as a body. I love Richard Baxter, a well-known Puritan. I think 17th century, he said this. He said, until our sin be bitter, our Christ cannot be sweet. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. Only when we look directly at sin and mourn is the wholeness of Christ and the gospel a sweet comfort. Next, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The word for meek here comes from the word for a sheath. Okay, so like a sword sheath. And so what's being said here is, it's kind of like, it doesn't mean that you, it, it, it means if you have a sheath, like can you imagine if I was walking around just like with a sword sheath, but no sword? You'd be like, what the, that's a strange fashion, you know, commitment. Uh, but I would be, I would have a sword. A sheath means that you would have a sword. But the idea is you keep your sword in the sheath. In other words, meekness is not just saying you're weak, but you're not strong. What it's saying that it's a strength, it's a might, but it is in submission, that it's under control, that it's not just wielded willy-nilly, just chopping out whatever it can, but it's something that is actually controlled. And surprisingly, Jesus says, when you do that, when blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think, okay, meek people, what happens? I don't immediately think they'll inherit the earth, right? We think if you want to inherit the earth, you have to conquer. You have to take out the sword. 
But while we seem, this seems counterintuitive, we also know it's true. We also know it's true. Because Jesus Christ himself entered into the world and he defeated the greatest evil that ever existed by being meek. By emptying himself, Philippians 2 says, emptying himself of all his power, all his glory, all his rights and privileges, leveraging all of them not for his own good, but for yours and I, mine. Laying down his life so that we might be saved. And then what does his father do right after that? He places the world at his feet. Through his meekness, we are saved. And Jesus invites us into that meekness. Now, I should note, this is one of the verses that inspired peaceful protesting. This verse here from Jesus about meekness is something, one of the verses, the primary verses that in the history of the church and specifically the civil rights movement inspired peaceful protesting. Think how beautiful that is. Think how beautiful that is. Over the past week, we've seen two pictures of how a hurt community can make their hurts known. One is to take up the sword. The other is to place the sword down and peacefully protest. Not fight clubs with clubs, guns with guns, but with a non-anxious presence. And while it isn't perfect, it's much better than the alternative. And as both the civil rights movement and martyrs throughout church history who have laid their lives down, I could go into St. Bonavis. I could, I, there are so many throughout. What they do is they literally, when they came over, they laid their life down in meekness, and it changed the world. What's crazy about this is where this has been grasped throughout world history, it has changed the world. And I think it comes from a deep-rooted knowledge that this world is not for mine for the taking, but I'm wholly dependent on the one who I inherit it from. It's Jesus' world. It's his earth. And submitting that power and that might to him. What I'm saying is we should look around and realize what a precious reality it is that there is peaceful protesting in such a thing, and it comes out of a Christian heritage. And we should delight in it. And knowing that a beautiful thing like peaceful protesting came from Jesus means we should keep our eyes on Jesus as well. So next he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now the question here is, what is righteousness? Right? Who's, who's righteousness? Who, this person says this is righteous, this says this is right. Well, what the Bible says is no one is righteous but God. So what's being talked about here by righteousness is the moral perfection of God. He is righteous, which means he acts rightly. And so whenever the Bible talks about righteousness, unless it qualifies it, it's always talking about this kind of righteousness. But the implication of hungering and thirsting for righteousness is that not everything is perfectly righteous. You're hungering and thirsting because you're not full. You're not getting, you're not satisfied with the righteousness in our world and the righteousness in ourselves. We lack righteousness. Our world lacks righteousness. And we have hungry pains. And Jesus is saying, you should be, you know, you should be hangry for righteousness in your world, Right? You should know there's a gap there, and you should desire it. Hungering means the sight of heaven. There will always be a lack of righteousness. We'll hunger for more because there will always be more of a need for more. But Jesus says, if you look to me for that righteousness to make all things new, then you'll be satisfied because I am perfect righteousness. 
I am perfectly righteous. See, our jobs, our politics, our intelligence, and even, yes, our causes, none can satisfy that desire for perfect righteousness. Nor can they bring about perfect righteousness in this world. But Jesus says, if you seek my righteousness, it will satisfy you, it will fill you, it will heal you and overflow into the broken world around you, through you. Listen, you can't give what you don't have. You can't be the change till you've been changed. If you want to see heaven invade earth, you must let the one who opens the heavens invade you first. And let his righteousness and even his righteous judgment have its way in your heart hunger and thirst for righteousness and drink deeply from Christ, only then will you be whole. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I'm just going right through these. This is how Jesus preaches it. So I'm like, I'm going to preach it like Jesus does. We're just going to keep going through. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. May, it may be helpful to find mercy here over against grace. We're like, what, what's mercy? And then we, uh, is it grace? What, what does this term mean? Well, grace, this comes from Todd, who's one of our elders. I thought it was super helpful. He said, grace is getting something good that you did not earn. Grace is getting something good that you did not earn. Mercy is not getting something bad that you did earn. Okay, so if I go home from here on my way home, and I stop by and I pick up some ice cream uh, to bring it for my kids, uh, uh, that's, that's a grace. That's, not some, that's something good that they did not earn, Right? Now, you might be like, oh, no, your kids are kind of nice and cute, and they're pretty obedient. So maybe they're, ah, we'll just say they didn't earn it, right? Maybe they had a horrible morning, okay? So they didn't earn this ice cream. And so it's a grace that I brought them something good that they did not deserve. Now, at the same time, let's say I get home, and my wife's like, man, it was on fire. The kids were like, they literally set the couch on fire, and then they were like cutting up the couch and everything. And it's like, what are you doing? And it's like, mercy would be for me to withhold punishment, to withhold something, not give them something bad that they do deserve. Okay? And so that is mercy. Not give them something bad that they earned. And that sounds beautiful. We go, man, yeah, merciful. Like when we read that verse, don't you go like, okay, we're talking about brokenness, but mercy, that's good. We want to be merciful. But it does not come naturally to us, does it? To give, not give to people what they do deserve. I know that I love to give to people what they do deserve, or the bad things that they do deserve, right? But it's interesting, because that is the exact opposite response of the Godhead towards us. It's the exact opposite response of God's response to our sin. The Father, seeing sin, sent the Son into a world that deserved bad things and gave us good and beautiful things chief of which being himself. God having his goodness maligned, his beauty defaced, his love perverted, moves towards us with mercy, not giving us the bad thing we do deserve. Instead, he gives us grace, the good things we don't deserve, his very self. And Jesus says, just as my mercy has flowed towards you, it should overflow to others. If my mercy, if my spirit has come into you and my mercy and my love is coming into you, it should just overflow in the same way that the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are overflowing with love and delight. It should overflow out of you. You should welcome others as Christ has welcomed you. You should be merciful to others as Christ has been merciful to you. You should love others as Christ has loved you. Forgive others as you've been forgiven. These things are replete throughout Scripture. If God is at work in you, it will overflow out of you. And friends, if you 
are not merciful, I know when I am harsh and I'm unmerciful with myself or other people, it's because when I follow that and search my own heart, what I find is, is I don't actually believe my Heavenly Father is merciful. There's something untrue about God that I'm believing. And Jesus is saying, don't go down that road. Pursue mercy. And as you struggle to give mercy, as your heart says, I don't want to give mercy right now. What God says is, when you give mercy, my spirit will come to you and remind you of the mercy that you received in me. And it was so undeserved. You deserved bad things. But I gave you my son. I gave you my grace. So let me ask the obvious question for our cultural moment. I don't know how else to describe it. If that sounds too hip. Somebody said the other day, ooh, cultural moment. I'm not trying to be hip. I just don't know how else to describe it. Who deserves, who do you think deserves bad? Who do you think deserves it? Really deserves it? Who has it coming to them? That person in your mind right now, that's the person who you could be showing mercy to. That Christ wants to manifest his grace, his love, his glory, his goodness through you right there. By you showing mercy. And I am talking to everyone across the entire spectrum of what is going on right now. I'm talking to myself. This verse has broken me to tears so many times this week. How merciless I am. Jesus says be merciful because he doesn't want you to become callous to his mercy. He wants you to drink deeply from his mercy. Bitterness and hatred will not bring life. They will not bring healing. To say otherwise is a lie. But Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to my merciful Father but through me. Find life in me. Bring your bitterness to me. Bring your anger to me. And see their sin on my cross. See your sin on my cross. And find wholeness in me and be merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure here is moral purity. So just to cut to some of these, I'm hitting a little bit quicker, obviously. But here it says pure is moral purity. To have pure motives, a heart where evil is displaced by God's spirit. It's the Holy Spirit, right? It's not just like the Holy Spirit was like, hey, spirit, like what? It's like, actually, I had like a different first name. Let's go with holy, right? That sounds good. No, he's Holy Spirit because he's bringing God's holiness dwell within you, make you more and more like Christ, God's holy presence within you. And God is saying, I want to displace the evil and impure motives that are in your heart, and I want to displace it with my spirit and bring you my holiness and make you whole. And Jesus says, keep your heart pure because when you do, you'll see God. Now, ironic because... Jesus is God, and he's saying, when you are, have pure in heart, you will see me. And Jesus is standing right there, right? So I'm like, I wonder if anyone chuckled, like, you know, understood, and they're like, oh, wait, but you're God, and you're standing here, and we, I, I get it, right? So maybe I'm pure in heart because I see Jesus. No, what, so what Jesus is saying here is clearly not, he's not saying, like, physical sight. He's saying spiritual apprehension. I don't know how, like, spiritual sight, inward sight, the ability to know and experience and see throughout your day, the lens that you walk through life with is the loving embrace of the Godhead embracing you because of the work of Christ and the Spirit pulling you in and living in that life of worship of overflowing in God's delight in himself. You're invited into that. 
And God's saying, I want you to have that vision. But when we seek that sense of beauty, when we seek that seek beauty and glory and truth and love and lesser things, it blinds us to God. It blinds us to God. Listen, if you right now are filling your heart with rage or with lust or with bitterness or with greed, just saying that's not pure. It's not just I just want pure, like, you know, like just some purity movement where it's like, hey, let's just be pure, guys. That's what good Christians do. He's saying, you won't see me. I came here so you'd know me, so you'd really see me, so you wouldn't play games anymore, so you'd have life in me. You'd walk out of the grave. Kill these things before they kill you. I had a friend this week who just really was helpful. He said to me when I was overwhelmed by everything going on, he said, you'll go crazy if you spend all your time analyzing the depths of sin without gazing at the beauty of God. And I was like, I don't want to hear that right now, right? You'll go crazy if you spend all your day analyzing the depths of sin right now, but you never gaze at the beauty of God. Gaze at the beauty of God. Fight for a pure heart and you'll see God, Jesus says. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Uh, Boy, is this verse needed right now. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. Many of you have probably heard the word shalom. It's a really, another one of those complex words. And what it's really saying is the, the reality as it's supposed to be, as God created the world, his shalom, the reality of his presence invading the earth and all sin being removed, how things should be, that is God's shalom. And sin vandalizes God's shalom. That's what sin does. It's the best definition of sin I've probably ever heard. Sin vandalizes God's shalom. So God's shalom is not brought to bear in your own heart. God's shalom is not brought to bear in your home, in our city, in our community. Sin vandalizes shalom. And what God is saying here is that peacemakers are those who bring God's shalom where his peace and shalom have been vandalized. This means we have to take broken things and make them whole. This means that we have to take things that have been burned to the ground because of sin and we have to make our goal, our, our calling as sons and daughters of our king is to enter into that and try to bring beauty from those ashes. Now this is different from just being peacekeepers. I should be very clear here. This is not just being cowardly. This is not just being kind of flatterers. This is not just calling anything that feels like peace. Let's just pursue that. That's not what Jesus is saying. That's why after this, he's going to go immediately into when you're persecuted. Like peacekeeping will lead to persecution. It's fighting against what's going on in this world. It's fighting against sin. It's fighting against it in ourselves, in our, for our homes, contending for our children and our spouses and our friends and our colleges and our classmates and our coworkers and everyone around us and even up into the systems because we are the people who comprise the systems around us. And so with us, go with, our sin comes with us. And Jesus is saying, if you are a son and daughter of your heavenly father, you will look like him because he says they will be sons and daughters. They will be sons of God. And our God is a God who has entered into this world to make peace with his enemies. And he says, if you are a son of him, of your father, you will look like him. 
right? Who has had my son the other day, the things he says and does, and immediately people look at me like, I know where he got that from, right? Like we do things that our fathers do. We imitate them. And he's saying, imitate me. Be a peacemaker like me. Pursue peace with others. Christ left the shalom of the Godhead to enter our brokenness and be vandalized for our peace. He is a way maker because he is a peacemaker. And he says, join me in my work of making peace where there's division. An anthem, I think we need to think. We need to be having conversations. I've been thinking this week about we need to listen, lament, and then also lend ourselves to whatever does need to happen. And I know that's where the conversation gets extremely complex. But we need to be having conversations right now saying, you know what we are committed to? We're committing to be peacemakers in our city, in our homes, and it starts with me. We will pursue the peace of this city. We will contend for peace. And that starts with gospel wisdom. It starts with gospel conviction. And it flows out and overflows from there with meekness and a hunger for righteousness and a love for our neighbor. And this is where I want to say to our black brothers and sisters, we will contend for peace with you. We hear you. We see the hurt. We lament with you. And we will seek the peace of this city. Now, in the last two Beatitudes, Jesus addresses persecution. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, it's interesting. These verses kind of like, it's almost like verses 11 and 12 almost further unpack verse 10. Do you see the parallels there? Where it's like he's talking about, and what's interesting here is Jesus says, blessed are you when persecution happens. Just let that sit in. Blessed are you when persecution happens. Now, we should define this here. This is not just any persecution is good. What Jesus is saying, persecution for my name, for the sake of me, for the sake of making the gospel known, for the sake of loving me and following me with conviction. If that brings persecution, then blessed are you. Why is that? Because your life is so overflowing with my life, which is from another world, that it overcomes this world that you're in. And that's the whole idea, which is why he's saying you'll experience the kingdom of heaven. That means that heaven is already at work in you. What he is saying is, Jesus isn't saying persecution, evil, or reviling are good things. He's saying they're evil things. But he's saying when they do happen, they are nothing in comparison to better things that he has for us. It is when we are persecuted and maligned for Christ that we learn to find our home not in this world but in a better one to come. So lastly, when brokenness will be no more. In both Beatitudes, Jesus points to heaven. In other words, he's saying again, this is your goal. This is your motivation. Live in light of this heavenly reality. And I know that when we think of heaven, like I drop heaven and we immediately go to like a Hallmark card type thing. You know, the chubby babies and the harps and whatever it might be. Just kind of white. I always think like it's just whited out. I'm like, ah, it's so bright I can't see anything. But that's not heaven. Heaven is where we'll see God face to face forever. Where brokenness will be no more. What is the gift of God's grace? 
You know, we tend to say, what is, what is God's grace? What's the gift of God's grace? And you go, well, it's, it's, it's not earned. And you go, yeah, but what is the gift? What's, what's God's grace? Like, what's God giving you? What's the gift? And you go, well, you know, I, well, I, I just, it's not about me. I didn't do it. And you're like, I, I get what grace means, but what is the gift? And the gift is, Paul says, you will see God face to face. The gift of God is he's bringing himself to you and I so we can know him. Not in just some abstract sense that we'll know him and for eternity be, be with him. What Jesus is saying here is that there is this, this is an appetizer in this life. And you should be living, and when you're persecuted and you realize, no, I, I want to honor Christ, what happens is you begin to experience that appetizer of this thing that is this full course meal for all of eternity. will be embraced just and folded into the love of God. This is how Jonathan Edwards, a famous 19, uh, known as the greatest theologian in American history, North America, he said it like this, and probably the greatest sermon I've ever read on heaven called A Place of Love. This is how he describes it in terms of being in the presence of God. He says, there heaven, this glorious God is manifested and shines forth in full glory, in beams of love. There the fountain overflows in streams and rivers of love and delight. Talking about God there. Enough for all to drink at, to swim in, yea, as to overflow the world with a deluge of love. See, when man attacks you with hate, with anger, with bitterness, ugly words, Jesus is saying is, I will displace it with my love, my beauty, my grace. This life, that's not just some future reality left off in heaven where one day we'll experience God, his love, saying right now, if you lean into these things, these things that are so countercultural, these things that don't oftentimes make sense, you don't get these things through evolution. These things come down from heaven. They're my wisdom. If you will lean into these things, you will experience my spirit working in you and you will know my delight. And you'll be so filled with my presence. You'll be like a juggernaut, even in the face of persecution. Because you'll be so entranced with my glory and my love that you'll just flow, overflow with love and delight, even in response and loving your enemies. That's why Jesus says this later in Matthew's gospel. And that is a wholeness that can't be, t- it can't be taken away by anything in this world because it's a wholeness that resides in a completely other world. I want to invite the band up as we just a few last words. Anthem, our homes, our neighborhoods, our city desperately needs people who are whole in Christ. Our city needs this reality. We need this reality. It needs more than debates over our ideologies. Columbia needs more than just better schools, better job opportunities, better housing. These things are all great, but we need something better than these things from our dinner tables to our cubicles to our lecture halls to city hall. What this city needs is to see the love of Christ, the glory of God manifested in his people who are so filled with his glory and his delight and his love because of what Christ has done on their behalf and walked out of the grave with him and being filled with his spirit that they can't help but overflow into everything around them, things that don't make sense, things that are broken, and bring that wholeness with them. That is what our world needs right now. People finding wholeness in Christ in the midst 
of a broken world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, it is only because of you that we can have an idea of wholeness. Lord, wholeness would just be some abstract idea that has no basis in reality. It would just be a buzzword. But we can be whole in Christ. We can be new in Christ. And so, Lord, I ask that we would see the fullness of Christ. We would see the fullness of your glory. We would see the fullness of your mercy in Christ. We would see how you hunger and thirst for righteousness and you came into this world to make us righteous. You did not just gloss over it. You did not just paper over it. You did not just paper over the morning and looking at our sin and calling it what it is, but you entered this world and you brought your righteousness. You brought your mercy so we would receive the good that we do not deserve by your grace. Lord, just I don't even care about at the end of the day, everything going, just break us before you with these rallies. Lord, give us a hunger to know you. And Lord, may that overflow in grace and mercy and love and peacemaking for our neighbors and in this body into our city. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.